Welcome to episode number one of Dr. Dark After Dark. This is a, a podcast series that I've been told by many people I should do over the years. I'm quite well known for going on uh, kind of a rants about certain topics, so we'll do that at some point. Sometimes it's a lot of humour, other times it's very serious. So, uh, But I did a poll on Twitter just to see what to do first, and um, and basically doing a bull versus bear kind of look the markets came out of almost 50 percent of the votes so that's what i'm going to focus on in this episode um i have it's the first time i've done this i have a structure in front of me i don't want to be too structured uh, because i want to see where it goes i have no idea how long this will be so we will um get going and see where we go uh, i'm also going to try and um uh, basically hat tip people who um helped me with the ideas you know i think this is a big community on fintwit uh, macro community uh, and you know we and you know whilst some of us do have original ideas you know a lot of things get uh, passed around and people improve on them and think of different ways of saying it which i think is really important okay so let's get started so the first one is uh, bull versus bear and i'm just going to be talking really about uh, mainly equities and let's try and focus on, say, U.S. equities, just because it's the single most important equity market in the world. And we don't have to get into regional differences. Um, but I am going to talk about other asset classes within it. So this is just my thoughts. Um, you know, this is not investment advice. Uh, and I'm not going to get into, you know, individual investment recommendations. So if we start with... I'm going to go through various points, talk about the bull side and the bear side. And then, you know, at the end, maybe we come to some form of conclusion. So last week, I'm recording this on the 2nd of April, we had a huge rally, uh, over 20% from the the lows to about uh, over 2,600. And the lows are about 2,200. And um, of course, this got people very excited that the bear market was over pretty much before it started. um, And... That's that. Now, you know, give it a few months, all-time highs, V-shaped recovery, all this stuff. And this is possible. It's, um, but let's let's assess the evidence. So as of the 1st of April, it wasn't a joke in that the market got crushed. It's down about 5%. Whether this is to do with the uh, rebalancing at the end of March, or just the fact that it had rallied a lot, um, and we're in a bear market. I mean, let's not forget that it was the fastest... Um, crash ever to bear market status let's just define a bear market of where you're minus 20 percent from the top faster than even the great depression so you know that that's an important point to remember like you know bear markets also have generally the largest corrections uh so i.e these are corrections upwards so you know we we shouldn't forget about that either and so The volatility is crazy high right now. And, it, and again, I want to you know, have to appear to Keith McCulloch at Hedgeye. Uh, he pretty much every f- fifth word that he talks about on the macro show every single day is about volatility. Um, and if you guys haven't checked that out, you should. And, you know, we're in the quote unquote fuck bucket right now where equity vol, vol in. Um, and again, when most people say vol, they mean volatility, not volume. It's really confusing for people starting out. But when you hear vol, they almost always mean volatility. 
and they'll say volume, the, the full word when they mean volume. So when the VIX is above roughly 3031, it's a very, very difficult regime to invest in. Uh, we actually went up to pretty much 90. Um, we were above uh, 60 for an entire week. Last time this happened was 2008. Um, and so it's, you know, one school of thought is just, well, with volatility that high, you shouldn't be investing. Why? Because it's the classic. If you go down 50%, you need to recover 100% to get back to where you started. And that's just math. And if you don't understand the math, go and do the math. So, so maybe, you know, we, we already reached the bottoms. We had the rally. And so we're going to get a V-shape. Okay, so let's look at what data can we look at to see if a V-shape recovery is likely in America. Now, there's only one country so far where we have um, data from the COVID virus uh, and some form of beginning of a recovery, and that's China. Now, everyone gets triggered because, oh my God, China makes up all the numbers and yeah, this is what happens every time. Well, look, let's be honest, pretty much every country, is any country 100% honest all the time? I doubt it. Um, I am not saying China has accurate numbers all the time. However, their February, which remember, February was the worst month. So January, Wuhan was locked down towards the end of Jan. February was pretty much a lockdown for half of China. So February really should be the bottom. Um, because in March, um, quite a few businesses, especially well, in, in other areas like Guangzhou, Guangdong province, um, you know, Shanghai, Beijing, you know, a, a lot of the um, areas where there's a lot of business activity, you know, weren't locked down in, in March. So one would expect February PMI, so Purchase Manager Index in China, to be really bad in February. And it was. The National Bureau of Statistics gave it a, said it was a, a 35. This is for um, manufacturing. It was actually below 30 for services. But let's just look at the manufacturing. And um, so 35. So what does that mean? This is where there's a lot of misunderstanding on Twitter. A PMI is a diffusion index. It, it asks a company a really simple question. Uh, the, the top level question is, this month, i.e. March, oh sorry, we're talking about February. So in February, did you do more business, less business, or the same amount of business as January? And the firm just says more, less, the same. It doesn't say I did a lot more or a lot less, or I did 3.4% more or less. It doesn't say that. This is very consistent across the world, whether it's market, the ISM in US, uh, all the various PMIs that there are. And so... PMI is really good at finding the first month there's a problem because you're going to see a large drop, especially if there's a large exogenous shock. That's exactly what we saw. PMIs went from above 50 to 35. And there's a second PMI in China, just like in the US there's two PMIs, called the Kaixing one, which is the private sector. It's slightly more biased towards SMEs. The government one's slightly more biased towards larger companies. And the Kaixing one went down to 40. And again, it was previously above 50. So this was both quite consistent with, yeah, there's a big problem. I mean, the, I was surprised how low the China PMIs went. So again, one can say, well, China makes up data. Sure, but I mean, they put out numbers that were really, really bad. 
you know, I don't see, maybe they were worse, but it doesn't really matter. The point is they were really bad. And so then the key is, in March, what type of recovery? Everyone's talking about the V versus the U versus the L versus the, the W, and then you've run out of letters, so you have to have the Nike swoosh, which is, you know, the, the kind of the tick, um, which actually may well be the most likely one. And so in February, this really tilted people on Twitter. We got a um, MBS, so that's the National Bureau of Statistics, um, figure of 52. And so the graph looked like a massive V because it went from above 50 to 35, back up to above 50. It literally looks like a perfect V. And so, of course, everyone says, not everyone, but a lot of people were talking about, well, this is because China fakes data and none of this is real. And I told you so, you can't trust anything. Well, but they didn't think about what it means. And I did a large thread on this on Twitter, which got pretty widely um, distributed. And people actually, for, which is very rare on Twitter, said in the comments things like, oh, oh I actually didn't realize this. I didn't. I didn't realize that it was just a month on month. Um, and so therefore, if it goes from 35 to 52, 50 basically means there's no expansion or contraction. So 52 means there's a slight bit of expansion versus the previous month, i.e. March was had a little bit more business activity than February in China. That's exactly what one would expect. I live in Hong Kong. I, I, you know, I do hear things from the ground in China. Uh, been there almost fifty times, uh, but I, you know, I don't have magic inside information. But like from everything I'm hearing and seeing, you know, March was clearly a less bad month than February. If it was a real massive V shape in actual activity, you would have seen a PMI of something like seventy. And by the way, PMIs can go that high. You know, the US has had PMIs in the high sixties before. Again, look at the data. And then the Kaixing PMI came out, I think it was just yesterday, which went from 40 in February to 50 in March for manufacturing. Again, that's exactly what you expect. They're very consistent. And this is a private sector one versus uh, the government one. And Kaixing actually has been quite critical of the government in its handling. It, you, you can't just say, um, oh, well, they're controlled by the state. They're actually not. They're one of the few relatively independent media houses. Uh, really quite highly respected. They've broken a lot of stories over the years that ruffled some feathers um, and generally turned out to be fairly accurate. So it doesn't look like it's a v, well, it's not a V-shape. Um, and it looks to me like it's, well, we don't know exactly. It could be a U-shape, you know, and we're in the kind of the bottom bit at the moment where it kind of slowly increases, then it drastically increases. Uh, it's possible, but I doubt it based on um, the data that's been coming out of China. Um, if you look at uh, the uh, a number of people taking trains, planes, number of uh, the traffic. So you can look at the TomTom site and you can actually get a real-time view of traffic in all the major cities in China or indeed anywhere in the world, which is really interesting. And uh, yeah, none, none of these have shown V-shape and shipping as well has been poor. So it looks to me like it's not an L. I mean, we're not just going to go down and then flat forevermore. You know, clearly, there's going to be a recovery. So I saw the other day people talking about a Nike swoosh. Yeah, maybe this is the one, right? So it goes down fast, and then you've got a you know, 
basically a relatively long, slow, but linear increase. No exponential increase here in the recovery. And why is that? And I think this is where there's a big advantage living in Asia. Because we've been dealing with this. I'm in week nine of my kids not going to school. Most people in the world are in week one or two. We've seen, you know, and when you feel, when something happens to you personally, you just have a better understanding than if um, it's natural, human nature, than if you read it on Twitter. And, and again, let's focus on China where, you know, the numbers were obviously largest. And again, we don't need to get into if the numbers are true or not. Let's be very clear. No country in the world tested everyone. Uh, no one really knows how many people have COVID-19. Uh, so yeah, let's just get over that fact. And what's really important here is the psychology of the population. You've got 1.4 billion people, roughly half had some form of lockdown, about 700 million which is double the population of the US. The, the, the government can't just say, go back to work. A lot of the people stayed in, uh, because it was um, happened with Chinese New Year, which for those you know, who follow that, that's the largest migration of people in the world every year, but by far. You're talking pretty much everyone in China leaves the cities, goes back to their hometowns and rural areas. Um, and people just stayed there. They're not going back to factories. Um, and you did see a slow recovery in, you know, the iconic producers such as, you know, well, I should say assemblers. They don't really make things. They assemble things like Foxconn. Yeah, they, they, you know, Apple warns they had supply chain issues. You know, it didn't just get back to normal just like that. And that's because you had a psychology where people were scared. And now people everywhere in the world are scared. But at the time, this is in, you know, let's say February, most of the rest of the world were just thinking it's the flu. And that's, to be blunt, what most people thought. And political leaders across the world hardly helped on this. Um, so you've got this psychology where it just is going to take a lot of time for people to trust going back to the bigger cities where a lot of the, you know, the, um, their jobs are. And you're just not getting a V-shaped recovery. If anyone can command people to go back to work, it's China. So... Yeah, and I think this will change people forever um, in their consumption patterns. Now, we, we, I, I don't have data to prove that yet. So we'll see. So is there a V-shape? The bulls would say V-shape. Trump has said, well, he's, he's reduced his expectations somewhat, I would say, in the last couple of weeks. But before he was saying, yeah, he's still saying there'll be the you know, amazing boom recovery. I don't see it. The data doesn't suggest that will happen. Anecdotally, it's not going to happen, but it could. But, but again, investing in macro is about probabilities. And so the probability of a V-shape, I would say, is low. Okay, so the next kind of big bull thing is um, the Fed and stimulus. So trillions of dollars, you know, to businesses, to people, you know, they've, they're, they're propping up, um, well, You've had, in effect, now unlimited QE. You've been buying $75 billion per day of treasuries, um, plus $50 billion of mortgage-backed securities. That's now slightly lower. They've propped up the investment-grade market. Maybe they're going to prop up the high-yield market. Uh, they're not theoretically allowed to, but they've come up with a workaround um, at using uh, the treasury. 
And so a lot of bowls are saying, well, you know, with all the stimulus, yeah, this is again going to drive the V-shaped recovery. It has to be super bullish. Like, you know, QE is great for stocks. Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, th this is a lot of money. But then just think of the GDP hit. So we've got several trillion of stimulus. Now, some of it's backing up debt uh, as opposed to just actually, you know, going to the hands of people. So you can't just add all the numbers. It's not apples to apples. I see this all the time, you know, especially some politicians in the US just started adding numbers together. It's just like adding apples to cars to windows. You, you can't. Um, and, and I see it a lot. People confuse balance sheet with P&L. Like a lot. Anyways, so. And then, you know, one of the core things here is that this is going to drive inflation. So if you start giving people helicopter money, surely that's inflationary. And inflation is generally pretty good for stocks. You know, the Venezuelan stock market, it's a classic example, has gone up many, many thousands of percent in the last few years each year, even more than that. In local currency, of course, in, in US dollars, it's done terribly, absolutely terribly. Um, but this stimulus really, at first, we're just plugging a hole. I mean, no one knows what the GDP impact is going to be here. But again, we have some data points from China. We saw, and again, for those that say China makes up the numbers, okay, so, but it, the National Bureau of Statistics did say retail sales were down 20% in um, February and um, industrial production was down 15%. For the whole country, remember, the whole country was not locked down. Half of it wasn't. Um, and, and, and also the half that was locked down, there were varying degrees of lockdown. Well, they came up, you know, those numbers, yeah, point towards GDP of, you know, if retail sales are down 20%, industrial production 15 yeah, you're probably thinking GDP is going to be down a number roughly in that ballpark. And if you look at the banks in the US, who, you know, old wall as... Uh, Keith Hedge, I would say, they've been uh, all putting their finger in the air and they have their models and coming up with um, numbers for GDP in the US. And, you know, they're, they're, some are as low as minus 30 percent, others around 20 percent. No one knows, right? Um, but let's just say it's around tw minus 20 percent for Q2. OK, so the US, just to make the numbers easy, has 20 trillion GDP. It's fractionally higher, but whatever. Um, and so that's five trillion a quarter. So 20% is a trillion. So if you've actually got a stimulus of, if you ignore the stuff that's bailing out debt, um, is um, of the order of one to two trillion. So it's just filling the hole. It doesn't, it's one reason it doesn't necessarily have to lead to inflation. But a more important one is that um, a lot of this money will just die. And, and again, hat tip here to, to, to Steve Van Meter, who does fantastic videos on YouTube. Uh, not well known, but is one of the world's experts on world dollar liquidity. Um, and I'll talk about world dollar liquidity more later. But the key thing is, is that a lot of the um, Fed QE is, and stimulus will, will, will actually end up just, the money will die. It will be extinguished. Remember, money's created uh, by banks when they lend. The Fed can't create money. They really can't. Uh, banks create money, it's a debt-based economy, and when uh, loans are paid back, that money gets uh, destroyed. And But the interest that has been paid does stay in the system, and that's how money supply grows. That's not very well understood. And it's not taught in schools, which I think is pretty shocking. Um, it, it's kind of bizarre that most, most people don't understand how money's created. 
so it's not necessary that necessarily going to be super inflationary um it wasn't with the uh when bush did some uh, basically helicopter checks which this has happened before not to the same degree of course so you know the jury's out you know is the fed and the fiscal stimulus basically just plugging the hole or is it genuinely you know when they give people, say, $3,000, are they really going to go out and spend? Well, I mean, right now they can't go out. And if you're worried about your job, the last thing you're going to do is spend that on some frivolous thing you don't need. You're going to save it. And and in the past, when this has happened, a lot of debt got paid off, and then therefore the money gets destroyed. Um, so, you know, that's it's an interesting, interesting argument there. And again, no one really knows all the ramifications. Okay, so let's move on to Tina. There is no alternative. So why would you be bullish on equities? Well, what else are you going to invest in? You know, US Treasuries are super low yield. Gold has no yield. Um, yeah, like I'm not getting into you know, things like Bitcoin here. I think that's got a super interesting future um, and is a wonderful asymmetric call option. It, it's just it's got 100, 150, whatever it is today, billion market cap, and it, it's, it's nowhere near large enough. Uh, asset class um you know and um what else are you going to invest in and you know i just think an interesting data point here is what whilst we've had let's say a generation of people on wall street and who are advising uh, people might put their money uh, a lot of them never seen a um, recession before so i saw some stats that said basically half the people weren't even working when 08 happened They've never seen the stock market go down. They think it only goes up. Um, and yeah, are they really thinking about alternatives? So, for example, if you look at the long bond, so the 30-year U.S. bond, um, this is accessible via uh, ZROZ, the zeros or EDV. Uh, they have durations of around 25, 26 years. And if the long bond goes from, it's roughly 1.3% now down to, say, 50 bips, Again, some are talking about that if there's yield curve control from the Fed. That actually will give you over 20% upside. And you've invested in U.S. Treasuries, the world's reserve currency. Now, whilst volatility of bonds have gone up a bit, actually markedly recently, it's been trending down as well. Look at the move index. Uh, it's uh, way below 90 again now. It went up a lot, lot higher. So there are, you know, 20% upside, that could happen fairly quickly. I mean, you know, this is equity-like returns. For bond volatility so there are alternatives there it's a super liquid market i'm just making it one illustration um and um you know so let's see so now the bull thing was just you know just the flu bro being a bit facetious um we've all heard this we've heard it from politicians we've heard it from um people we know we've heard it all the time well there was a moment for me, and again, I'm out in Hong Kong, so I, in January, you know, we were hearing a lot of stuff. From, you know, and there was movement from China to Hong Kong at the time. And when, you know, I know people in Wuhan, and I spoke to them, and it, when it got locked down, they, they didn't have magic answers, but they were like, well, this must be really bad, because there's no way the government locks this down. This has to be worse. And that was the moment where um, and again, I'd recommend people to listen to Dr. Chris Martinson on YouTube, Peak Prosperity is his channel. 
around the 20th of January, he started reporting on this every day. And he got it, he nailed it. As did Eric Townsend, Macro Voices, which is another um, podcast for sure you should listen to if you already don't. And both these guys were, well, didn't get a lot of love from a lot of people around the world, put it that way. They were called a lot of nasty things, and they were both 100%, pretty much 100% right. So I think we, you know, we, those of us that were following this closely, and again, living in Asia was a big advantage um, because we were hearing much more about it, and it, it wasn't, you know, the other side of the world. Um, and um, and then really when it when it started to spread outside of China, that was really the moment for me where I'm like, okay, this is probably going to get out of control. Um, and then for whatever reason, and we don't know the reasons, you've had much, again, let's just assume data is accurate at the moment. We don't need to get into the argument. There's no point talking about the data is what it is. It may or may not be accurate. In the long run, we'll probably get accurate, fairly accurate data from serological studies all around the world. Um, but there's, there's no point getting into an argument on that now. Um, but what's for sure is if you look at case fatality rates in Italy, Spain, UK, US, they're really high. I'm seeing the last few days, UK has been nudging 10%. Now, again, they're not testing everyone. So I'm fully aware there's a numerator and a denominator. But again, the data is what it is. It's really difficult to work out case fatality rate um, for epidemics, pandemics. Again, I've listened to a lot of uh, experts on this. And what's wonderful about this is at least experts are becoming fashionable again because we kind of went through a time and trump was very much to blame for this but it also happened with brexit um where expert opinions just got ridiculed by politicians well you know what something comes along that politicians have literally no clue about and lo and behold they suddenly need to listen to experts again so let's hope you know scientists and other experts uh, experts in all fields you know, whether they be doctors or you know anything um get a boost from this. I think that would be fantastic. There will be some bright things that come out of this, even though it's a really shitty situation. And so what we saw, of course, in Wuhan, but then in Italy, then Spain, now in the US, UK, um, and and it's happened in other places, is you saw the hospital system being overloaded. Um, You know, it was very clear it was happening in Wuhan. Yes, there were were fake videos, but there were also not fake videos where you just saw people all over the place sitting in chairs with IVs. This is happening around the world. Of course, in Japan, sorry, in January, most of the rest of the world were like, this will never happen where we are. Well, now it is. So it's not just a flu. And again, this this points towards you're not going to have a um, V-shaped recovery. This is going to scar people for a while. Even if, let's say, there's one or 200,000 deaths in the world, that's, in the grand scheme of the world, not a lot. You know, 1% of the world would be about 8 million. You know, so you're talking not even 0.1%, um, 0.01% maybe. But, again, we don't know where it's going to go. But I still think this is going to change how uh, people perceive travel um, and uh, consumption. And, and clearly the um, supply chains of the world, which I'll get into this more later when we talk about the trade war, but you know, they're, they're going to change. Um, people will be bringing things. The fact that in US, most, well, they, they can't even manufacture most basic antibiotics, and, but I mean, nor can most countries in Europe either. 
They're very reliant on China and India. So it's not just the flu. Um, it luckily will be just the flu for the vast, vast, vast majority of people that get it, roughly 80%. And in fact, a lot of people won't even know they have it. By the way, that's why you should wear masks when you go out. Um, again, governments deliberately told people not to wear masks because they didn't prepare, so they didn't have the masks. But one of the reasons this is much more under control in Asia, especially East Asia, is because everyone wears masks. If you don't wear a mask in, well, maybe the exception of Singapore, but Hong Kong, China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, you're, you're a pariah, you're ridiculed. And we've known since early February, late Jan, early Feb, there was a paper from China saying that there was asymptomatic transmission of this. Again, it was published in Western journals. Again, lots of people love to just say, wow, it's China, they're making it up. Well, why would they make up this asymptomatic transmission? Yeah, that, that was also a data point that those who were studying this early um, realized, wow, this is going to be difficult. As Chris Martinson calls it, he calls it the honey badger virus. <laughs> All right, so next, next one is oil. Well, okay, so Saudi Arabia and Russia had a little bit of a fight, quite a big fight, and they didn't reduce production. They basically got to increase it. Uh, now, so the oil price moved very quickly from... I mean, Let's be clear, in early Jan, it was 60, right? And it moved down to 40, and now it's at 20. So this should be a giant stimulus. Gas prices, or petrol if you're in Europe, um, prices are cheaper. Uh, it's a huge stimulus to uh, people driving around, ex except, of course, people aren't driving around because they're not allowed out of the house. So it's not such a big stimulus versus if this uh, you know, has happened in the past. And also, a more subtle point, and again... Please watch Steve Van Meter's videos on YouTube. This is another reason world dollar liquidity is screwed up. So when oil was 50, 60 bucks, you got the numbers I've read. I'm not an expert on this, so forgive me if they're not exactly accurate, but had roughly one and a half trillion dollars a year of oil bought with US dollars. Okay, and so that you used to have years ago, U.S. importing a lot of oil, so they would pay with U.S. dollars. So this got U.S. dollars into the global system. Um, now, of course, that has reduced a lot. U.S. still does, um, well, it, it's complex, the import-export, but it, 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 it's still importing a bit of oil, uh, and it's actually exporting some of the final pro finished products. But um, it's importing a lot less than it used to. And that's obviously because of the shale boom, which was fine when oil was at 50, 60 bucks, but not so fine at 20. And also just that $1.5 trillion, well, if oil, let's say it was 60 and it was that amount, well, if it's at 20, that's half a trillion dollars. You've just lost a trillion dollars um, of, of, of money flows. So it's really reducing the velocity of, of money flow. And so the other parts of so the world dollar liquidity cycle is um, it's not a complex thing. And it's all based upon who has the reserve currency of the world, which is the U.S. So in the U.S., um, you have consumers that buy stuff. Now, if stuff's made in America, you're not adding to the offshore, outside of America dollar system. 
Now, people like Jeff Schneider called this the Euro dollar system, um, and um, that's fine. But it just um, when I talk about world dollar liquidity, I'm really talking about dollars that are outside of America and, in effect, not kind of governed, as it were, by the Fed. And because it's the world reserve currency, this is incredibly important to kind of lubricate the global economy. I mean, most commodities are bought and sold in um, in dollars, and I think it was forty percent of all trade in the world is in dollars. And there's no one else even vaguely close, right? I mean, let's be honest, right? Um, and so the problem you have now is that U.S. consumers are not uh, buying and imports because there's a huge demand shock. Um, and so therefore, their dollars, which they use to buy the imports, are not getting to companies outside the U.S., so those companies would normally have those dollars and they would convert them into local currency because you can't pay someone in Germany in euros or in Japan in... Sorry, you have to pay someone in Germany in euros, not dollars. In Japan, you have to pay them in yen, not dollars. It gets In effect, it gets to the central banks and then they basically buy US treasuries. Um, and um, and as you know, like you know, most central banks have large holdings of uh, US treasuries. And, um, and then that's how the money gets back um, to the US and um, instead of buying the treasuries but you also absolutely must have a large deficit in the US fiscal deficit in order to fund this cycle there's no fiscal deficit you don't need to create more treasuries um, and then this whole cycle so it's called Triffin's Dilemma if you're the world's reserve currency you have to run a large um, um, trade deficit and of course this is what <laughs> Trump's been fighting so, you know, we had a trade war, which hugely reduced uh, imports. And you can see it in the data. I mean, he did reduce the trade deficit, but what that does is reduce world dollar liquidity. The tax reform, again, quite popular bipartisan basis. Okay, not the exact wording of the bill, but for years, both parties in the U.S. have broadly agreed, why don't we get some of this overseas dollars that are... You know, that Microsoft, Apple, these guys, especially tech companies, have overseas, we should get them back to America so they can invest them here. Uh, and again, on the face of it, that seems good, but by uh, massively reducing the tax rate to, to bring dollars back, this again took dollars out of the uh, euro dollar system. Again, bad for world dollar liquidity. And now you've got this huge demand shock here, you've got a supply shock, you've got the everything shock, and oil. So this is one of the reasons the US dollar has been just incredibly volatile recently. I mean, it's been going up with DXY, which isn't necessarily the best thing to look at because it's over 50% euro. Um, but you know, it's what most people talk about. It has been, uh, it flew up through 100, and then it crashed back down to you know 98 or so. Now it's hovering around 100 again because every you know the fed seems to be coming out with new things pretty much every week in terms of extra swap lines to more and more countries and changing regulations on banks and because the us doesn't want the dollar to be too strong um and it's a little bit of a well to quote raul powell a bit of a wrecking ball um if you know, the, for everyone outside of america if it becomes too strong which ultimately affects america too uh, but of course it's possible and plausible, I'm not saying likely, but it could be that the kind of the uh, almost like the, the wet dream of Bitcoiners and gold bugs for a long time have been well, this is the beginning of the end of the fiat system yeah. because, in effect, 
US dollar is the cleanest shirt in the laundry where all the shirts are dirty. And since the early 70s, um, you know, we have, um, yeah, in, in, in a debt-based economy, just been creating, yeah, well, having larger and larger deficits in governments, creating uh, more and more debt-based money. Um, and, um, yeah, and it has ultimately got out of control. And, you know, we very much have this situation with the real economy and the financial economy. Now they do intersect, but, yeah. So there's still a giant uh, US dollar shortage. And you know, whether or not, you know, I, I, I genuinely think no one knows which way this can go. Um, although in the long run, I think, you know, most people believe in the long run that hard assets are going to do well versus all fiat currencies. Now, the reason, you know, so it's bullish if the US dollar is going down. Um, it's, it's pretty bearish if it's going up. It's pretty bad for companies in general. I think this is a really difficult one to, to call either way. Although I, I do like Brent Johnson's dollar milkshake theory. If you just put dollar milkshake into YouTube, you'll see tons of content with him. And so onto uh, another point that the bulls talk about, which is inflation is coming, and this is good for equities. So first of all, why does inflation have to come? It doesn't in the short term. It's relatively likely to in the medium to long term. Short term, I mean months. At the end of the day, this is a huge deflationary shock, deflationary shock in the short term. Um, and just look at things like the CRB index, which is the commodity index. It's just been crushed. I mean, look at copper. No bounce. No bueno. <laughs> no copper bounce. Um, the markets bounce 20%. Copper is just, and it's called Dr. Copper for a reason, right? Um, and, and also remember, like, it's, it's a copper price really is um, a function of Chinese uh, construction demand. That's, you know, where copper is used most is in, in construction. And that demand's just not there. Again, this just gives more weight to the fact it's not a V-shape in China. And it won't therefore be a V-shape in Italy, in the rest of Europe, in the US. And these, you know, and it's going to come in waves, right? As each country goes through um, you know, this crisis. And just look at jobless claims last week, right? We had 3.3 million in the US. There's more data coming out on the 2nd of April today. No one knows what the number will be. It could be more than 3.3, could be less, could be the same. We don't know. But it's going to be another big number. Um, you know, and so this is starting to add up. And it's 160 million people employed in the US. If you have 3.3 for five weeks in a row, that's basically 16 million, which is 10% of the workforce. And again, people are talking, and the unemployment rate before was 3.5%. People are talking about it getting to maybe 15 to 20. By the way, unemployment rate, just like inflation rate, is just the most. BS metric, and this is all governments in the world. Um, I, I mean, in the US, there's, there's like over 10 measures of inflation. I don't think anyone really has any clue whether they're coming or going. Everyone just picks the most convenient one for them. And when it comes to unemployment rates, I mean, it was, it's a very short period of time. I think it was just one month in the US. If you're not looking for over a month, you get taken out. You put it, so you're not in the numerator anymore. You get taken out. You will be in the U6 unemployment, but not the U3. It, it, it's 
the mind boggles about how much these numbers have been fudged. So again, people talking about China fudging numbers, well, everyone fudges numbers when it comes to inflation and unemployment. Why? Because it's politically expedient to do so. And both parties are just as guilty as the other. So this is not in any way trying to say it's a, a Dem or a GOP thing or left versus right. It's not. So with jobless claims up so much, and again, this is going to be happening everywhere in Europe, in US, and it's going to happen all around the world. This is a gigantic, gigantic um, demand shock. It really doesn't feel like inflation's, and, and again, I don't use the word feel. Let's look at data. So because of that data, you would not expect inflation to rear its head in the short term. Now, whether it does in the medium term, let's by that, we, we mean maybe kind of 2021 type time frame, 12, 18 months from now. Sure, um, it, it may well do. We don't know really how much of the stimulus is going to end up adding to the money supply. And ultimately, inflation is related to the increase in money supply and velocity of money. The money supply isn't increasing and velocity is very low. You're not going to see inflation. Now, Therefore, how to protect yourself against this, you know, um, you're know, you talking hard assets. Um, most obvious being gold, although gold actually does well in a negative real rate environment, um, which is a deflationary one. Gold doesn't necessarily do that well in a small, uh, if you have moderate inflation, 2-3%. If you had hyperinflation, sure, then it's just protecting the store of value protecting um look at the 70s for a good example so but again other stores of value people talked about are things like real estate well real estate hey we haven't got the data yet but it's who's buying and selling houses right now yeah we've heard out here in hong kong you've got a very overvalued real estate market you've heard people doing transactions at minus 25 percent minus 30 percent just to get them done maybe it could get a lot worse so you know the secondary and tertiary effects of this virus are, I, you know, I don't think discussed enough. It, it, this could ultimately be the combination of uh, 1928 Great Depression plus the tech bust of 2000 plus the financial crisis of 08 plus the fact you had a 1987-like crash and in, in, in just the speed. Remember, well, 87 was 22% in one day, which was by far the largest ever. Um, and you know all, you have all these things rolling into one. So, in summary, sure that it's possible that we, we we've just seen the lows in the S and P. Let's have a look where it is right now. Futures right now are at um, two thousand five hundred basically, um, and then the lows were two two. I again just being objective about everything we've just talked about i i don't believe that uh i think we're going to see lower lows volatility remain high i have absolutely no idea what the lows could be anyone that tells you they know is just either deluded or lying maybe some arguments about when in time we might start you know because bottoming is a process we tend to retest bottoms two or three times um it seems pretty difficult to argue that that's now because there's still so much uncertainty with, with this virus and it's still growing. I mean, the growth rate in America is, is crazy high. Um, I mean, this was a gigantic policy failure there, um, which may or may not 
cost Trump the election. Who knows? <laughs> he has a habit of making things work for him, so we'll see. Again, I'm not trying to be political in this podcast at all. So, you know, overall, I, you know, again, personally, I, I don't own any equities, uh, public equities, uh, and I'm very defensive in things like treasuries, uh, gold, cash, Bitcoin. Again, you can love or hate Bitcoin. I don't care. Um, it's like a cool option on a new financial system. And, um, and just taking short-selling opportunities when the market bounces. So, you know, one kind of finishing thought, which is it, it's a, we've had a whole generation conditioned to, what is it, uh, BTFD, buy the fucking dip. Well, that's in a bull market, right? In a bear market, it's just the opposite. It's STFU. Well, I kind of came up with that because I thought it was funny because I shut the fuck up, but it's sell the fucking up. It's exactly the opposite of buy the fucking dip. Sell the up. Um, and... You know, whether you use puts, uh, which again, if, if, if implied volatility is really high, they might not be the best way to do it. But you can just short sell a stock. Um, and it's just the same as buying a stock when the market is going up. And you know, as long as you risk manage it, it can be, you know, I'm not suggesting going 100% net short in your portfolio. Not at all. Um, but these are things to think about. Like, just because we've had 10 years of bull doesn't mark it. Maybe it's a Freudian slip. Um, doesn't mean we can't have, we're not going to have, well, unless the US becomes Japan, it's unlikely, we, which is possible, uh, but I still think it would be unlikely to have 10 years of bear market. We quite conceivably could have one or two years. And it's going to leave plenty of uh, opportunities to go um, for, for, for the market to bounce rapidly uh, and then to get shorted. And you'll, you know, as I said, bottoming out is a process. So we're going to see that process over the next, um, well, whether it's months or years, we don't know. Um, okay, so thanks for listening. Uh, and I will um, do another poll and to see what we're going to dive into in uh, the second Dr. Duck After Duck.